Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined here today on Cott's Corner with our Hall Hall of Famer and star of this show, Jim Cott, episode 374 on the network. Got a loaded show for you today, the back end of a doubleheader. But want to just thank a few people before we start. Our our subscribers closing in on 60,000. A year ago to date, I believe we were right at about 3,000 subscribers. We've grown quite a bit in a year. Appreciate your support. You know what to do. We're bad on the analytics of the podcast world, just like they do in baseball. Five stars, write some great comments, and that could help us climb the charts on iHeartRadio and all the other podcast networks we stream on. Uh, to Blackout Coffee, we appreciate your support. Jim K, all capital letters, followed by the number 20. So J-I-M-K 20 will get you 20% off at checkout on Jim Cott, the Hall of Famer. So buy some coffee for your, your family and friends at Christmas and help support this podcast as well. And then to our uh, longtime listener and very first guest we've had on the show, Ted Kubiak, three-time World Series champion. If you've got a baseball lover in the family, there's no book better than Old School by Ted Kubiak. Talks about his perspective on the game of baseball, the pastime that he's grown to love. And also, there's a nice companion fielding manual that goes along with it. I'll give you his website in the show notes here, but how to field a baseball. He, he believes in there's no better way, just like you do, Jim, no better way to get stronger, better than to work on your craft. So if you want to get better, stronger as a fielder, then get out there and field the baseball, just like you feel about pitching. So, Jim, welcome back to your show. Thank you very much. Yeah, I talked to Ted about those books. He's uh, sending me a couple. And uh, I've said for years to uh, back in the 60s when when I was sitting up on the hill at the outside the visiting Kansas City clubhouse, I said, guys, watch this kid at shortstop fielding the ball. That is the way you field it. And that was Ted Kubiak, who I think his nickname was smooth, but if it wasn't, I'll give it, I'll give him that nickname. I've been throwing it out there on the podcast. It's, I think that's the first one I didn't mention that you called him smooth, probably because you're, you're on it. So we got it in. So if it, if it wasn't his nickname, you called it to him, it's going to catch on because right. refer to him as smooth for about 10 episodes in a row with them. Um, we got a loaded show today. You and I have shared some great conversations off the air about it, you know, obviously you talked a lot with Ted Kubiak. I knew you guys would hit it off, but um, you had some spirited conversation with a former teammate of yours and a Hall of Famer also, uh, Ted Simmons. Uh, he's got a got an interesting view on the 10th man in the batting order, as he calls it. You want to share that with our audience? Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, Ted and I, if, if we, we uh, went nose to nose, not in an adversarial way, I was just listening to the intensity with which Ted presents his program and believes in it. And uh, there was probably no more intellectual, intense, committed teammate that I played with for a brief period of time than Ted Simmons. And, uh, you know, he, he's got a great baseball mind and he, he believes, as we as pitchers do, in, in what he thinks is right. So the 10th man comes from, and he will start out by asking you, as a hitter, what is the toughest at bat? What is the toughest thing to do as a hitter on the major league level? And the answer is to pinch hit. 
because you only get one at bat. So he has it figured out the way teams start off with 13 pitchers and they shuttle them back and forth. So you could have, I, I want to say it's like 25 to 28 pitchers, each pitch 50 innings for an entire season. That covers every inning in the 162-game season. But the starting pitcher, if he if he's perfect, he works through the first nine. And then there is a change. So when that 10th man comes up, there's a new pitcher. And then, you know, and then he works. So if it's a perfect game, obviously you could get through it with three pitchers, but that's not going to happen. Uh, so, you know, you use those pitchers on a rotating, revolving basis, and uh, you never allow a hitter to have an at-bat against the same pitcher twice in the same game. And, of course, my argument, not argument, but my point to Ted was, well, there is no question in my mind that with the science involved in the game today, that that is by far the most effective way, and these guys should be paid the highest. But as a fan, I wouldn't enjoy that game. So, of course, his comeback to me was, well, so kind of accusing me in a subtle way of being arrogant about saying, well, you would like the game to be played the way you played it. And he's right, I do. And you're having a hard time accepting the fact that there are people that enjoy the way the game is played today. Now, I haven't met too many of those people, but there were 70 million people that attended big league games last year. And I would have to say, conservatively, half of those people went to see the game. The other half go because it's an experience and they look at their cell phone and they tell their buddies where they're at. And then by the ninth inning, they say, Oh, who won? You know, so they're, yeah. they're not really into it. Like when my dad took me to games when I was a youngster and it would be like, what do you think? Hit and run, butt, steal. Uh, that kind of thinking doesn't go on. And he's right. I, I do wish the game was played that way, but Ted is right. And segueing from that into the excitement about Otani. Now, no disrespect to Otani, it's probably his agent, but this is getting about as nauseous as when LeBron James had the big, where's he going to play? Yeah, take my talents. So, you know, and, and truth be told, when I, when I think about Ted's plan, the team that benefits from Otani, because he's not going to be able to pitch for at least a year, is a team that wants a boost in attendance. Uh, they want uh, a marketing push with merchandise and exposure on TV. But as far as winning a championship, a GM would be better taking that $500 million and figure out three closers that might be the best closers in the game and pay them and implement his 10th man plan. Kind of reminds me of my friend Bill Parcells when he told his scouts, I want you to find me the three best punters in the country. And then, you know, we'll have a little tryout because I want the best punter because I want field position. I want to push the other team back the other way as often as I can and, and gain field position. So, uh, you know, he would be willing to spend a lot of money on a good punter, which is certainly not a glamorous position in the game of football. No. And uh, I think Ted is right when you look at giving these uh, $300 million contracts to position players. Uh, you're better off taking that money 
and getting the best closers. The examples he used when he was on MLB was, you know, in postseason, managers went to Madison Bumgarner, Randy Johnson. I mean, you go far back as the 40s when the Yankees went to Allie Reynolds. And uh, they used their best pitcher to close out the most important games. Yeah. So that's that's where you you know that's where you want your most uh, you want your most valuable players is those pitchers at the end of the game and and to kind of I guess substantiate or, or validate my my feeling on this phony deceptive WAR statistics W A R wins above replacement. My career WAR is double that of Bruce Souter. Now, how stupid is that? Because short relievers, for some reason, they get shortchanged in the war category, and yet they're the most valuable players on your team. If the Atlanta Braves had Mariano Rivera in the 90s, they may have won three or four World Series. So he was always there. And that kind of uh, that kind of supports what, what Ted's thoughts are. And I, the way the game is going, I mean, he had, he had pointed out on the TV show how starting pitchers have now gone from uh, five and a third innings to five to now four and two thirds. Yeah. And uh, the old Buckminster Fuller quote that Bill Lee shared with me years ago, uh, Buckminster Fuller, famed philosopher, says specialization breeds extinction. And the starting pitcher, if it continues this way, is going to be extinct. And yet... MLB Sixth Avenue, the commissioner's office, they're on a they they want to begin to find a way to train pitchers to be more durable and pitch deeper into games. And so you got two factions fighting each other because you got the commissioner's office, and I've heard Rob, he and I have talked. He's he's not a big fan of the analytics, but that's what teams do. So on on one hand, you've got what makes the game more appealing which is certainly not the 10th man theory, except maybe to a few fans, but what makes it more efficient and raises the percentage of winning the game. And that's where Ted pitch, Ted's pitching plan certainly would fit the bill. Uh, I would not want to be one of those pitchers knowing what I know now. In other words, when I was a young kid, if I'd say, wow, if I was a young kid now and I said, wow, if I could get good enough to just get a big league contract and I could pitch one inning maybe every other day or three innings every 10 days, and I'm going to make a lot of money. But I don't think I'd get a lot of satisfaction out of doing that. I would rather go head-to-head with somebody as a starter and uh, see who comes out on top at the end of the game. Yeah, I've thought long and hard about that. and I Ted, Ted's uh, obviously very smart in his – his theory makes makes sense in terms of the direction of the game. Um, when I when I see the game now, I, I guess I get the full circle view of having children that are playing it and being at all the different levels, player and coach. But um, to be a starting pitcher, we talked a little bit pre-show about the. I, I used my son Tanner as a, as an example of. There is confrontation involved in a way where, you know, if you let a kid, a catcher, and a pitcher call a game. Uh, that confrontation is going to happen in a good way, just like your conversations with Ted. You described it as you differed in opinion, but you guys were able to kind of have that uh, man-to-man conversation. I, you know, the, the commissioner is looking for those starting pitchers, but I think it's more than just training. I think the way we're growing kids nowadays too is um, we're we're taking that uh, abilities to stand up and think and. 
be, pardon the, 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 the word, but be a man and speak your mind and have an opinion. That being a, being a man, and I don't mean to offend women out there in the audience, but being a man and standing up like that and being able to put your chest out and talk you know, with confidence, that's what a starting pitcher has to have to, to go like you want, to pitch like you want him to pitch. Yeah, I, w- I would say, if, you know, without offending anybody with the being a man, it was being accountable and responsible and owning your craft. And that, that kind of ties into a comment that Tom Brady made on uh, his podcast that raised some eyebrows. He said that, you know, there's a lot of mediocrity in the, in the NFL right now, and, and the teams are playing checkers instead of chess. And so the way he explained that was he was always playing chess. He was looking three, four moves ahead of time. Uh, and nowadays, it's just they look to the sideline, and, and that's what they're doing. They're just one play at a time. And so we have highly paid pitchers, for the most part. They're being treated like college players. The college game has infiltrated the major league game. You know, the, the celebrations after the game, the celebrations during the game. Uh, before we had a you know, a real influx of college players in the, in, in the major leagues, those things weren't, you didn't see those things. I remember when Rick Reichert came out of University of Wisconsin, signed a big contract with the Angels, and everybody asked him, I said, yeah, college kid. Because most of the big league players then were farm boys from the rural areas, and, and the percentage of, of players in the big leagues that actually went to college was pretty small. There weren't a lot of really good high profile uh, players. You had USC, you know, with Rod Dado, and then you had uh, Bobby Winkles at Arizona State, Dan Lip- Danny Litwiler at Florida State. You had some standout programs, but not a lot of them. So, uh, you know, and now you'll see even the coaches that are being hired uh, are, are mostly coaches that have had college experience, have a lot of technical knowledge, but they don't have the the experience of what it's like and feeling what the heartbeat is like of a major league player between the lines where the stakes are higher and the pressure is growing. And that's what Tom Brady was talking about. You, we, we have taken away in many cases, the athlete's ability to use his brain, uh, to be decisive, uh, to think ahead. And, um, uh, all they do now is they flip the cue card and they look at what's to do. So that college game is is infiltrating the major league game. And, and as a result, we're seeing highly paid major leaguers, highly skilled, that would probably have the ability to be great players left to their own devices and use their own skill and instincts. And yet, we're, we're kind of dumbing them down by saying, well, you don't do it that way anymore. Here's, here's what all the statistics say. And I, I think we found out that you can twist those statistics uh, a lot of different ways. Well, this guy's, uh, he's hitting 500 off that pitcher out there. Oh, he's one for two. I mean, how many at-bats does a hitter have to have against a pitcher be- before you could actually say, there is a definite trend here to who has the advantage. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so that's where the statistics get skewed. But, uh, you know, I thought that was a great point by, by Brady. He didn't mean to, to demean the players of today, nor would I in baseball. But it's just that we're taking away uh, 
the skill that they have from the neck up and we're not allowing them to use it. I, I agree. I mean, it, as, as, as long as we take, we're treating them like robo quarterbacks or robo pitchers one pitch at a time. And they're being told what to do. It's no different than a machine being out there. And unfortunately, you know, players, players like yourself, when I watched, you know, you sent me videos of you and I watched those. And, and when I watched the, the greats out there, the Tom Brady's in football, there's a, there's an unobstructed self-expression about the way they played. And I don't mean to get philosophical about it, but um, who they were was, was exhibited in their, uh, their, their, their profession, their craft. Uh, it's how they thought the game. It's how they lived their life. And I agree. Brady, Brady thought in chunks and that's how most thinkers think. And he was setting you up for move four with move one. And um, yeah, I, 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 he came out hard and you, you talked about, you know, Rob Manfred doesn't like analytics and then the NFL being, you know, they fought him back about they're not mediocre. Well, the NFL is all about parody. They'll say it. And, um, you know, when I look across the, the, the front offices in baseball, there's, there's a common denominator. They all had tutelage for the most part in some, you know, in some capacity, they can all link them back to our, our major league main office in New York, some capacity. So I'll have to beg to differ politely on, uh, with him on that, that I think there, there is a connect to why the game is being played the right way. And, um, I, I love what Brady said. I'm glad he said it. Um, somebody's got to say it. Yeah. Well, you know, getting back to my friend, Ted Simmons, who there was no more deep thinker within the game than Ted. I mean, Ted would be absolutely the guy that would be thinking ahead to the next at bat uh, that this, that this hitter had when he was hitting right now with nobody on in a scoreless game early in the game. All right, we're going to pitch him this way because we know in that second or third at bat, he might come up with two men on, and then we're going to be able to change the pattern. So Ted would be one of those kinds of thinkers. And, uh, of course, the 10-man theory, that takes that all out of the equation because relievers, and this is not disrespectful, but relievers are not pitchers, they're throwers. They come in, and that's where, with another issue we can touch on shortly, is that's where we're ruining a lot of young kids. Uh, visited with a couple last night here in Georgia at a Christmas gathering who had sons that were pitchers. And even back then, they're all chasing velocity. So they all want to be able to pitch an inning in the big leagues and throw 99, 100 miles an hour and then take three or four days off and do it again. But in the process of reaching that 100, I don't know what the exact percentage of them is, but there's a lot of them they are ending up either having surgery or an injury that ends their career and they never really get a chance to realize their dream. So, uh, you know, relief pitchers very seldom have three pitches. Oftentimes they only have one, the greatest in history, Mariano Rivera had one. Yeah. He he could come in for one inning and, and bingo. Now, if he had to do that for nine, eight or nine innings over a period of time, he would not have been as effective as a, as a starting pitcher. Uh, and that's why, again, to Ted's point, you take your, you take your best pitchers who have the highest chance of going out there and pitch a one, two, three inning. And those are the guys you want at the end of the game. And in Ted's case, you're, you're even, you're even moving it back to where you want that guy out there every inning to, to pitch a one, two, three inning. So we're not developing pitchers. We're developing throwers. Yeah. He, he thinks, and then just to kind of make sure I'm, we're, I'm portraying what he's saying correctly, 
he believes that because of the direction the game is going, that that's maybe the best way to, to play, or does he believe that in spite of the way the game is going? Yeah, I mean, b- because that's the way the game is played, and if, if, if you're a deep thinker like Ted is, and he admits, he said, I like bullpenning. That fit right in with him with Brian Kenny because Brian and I kind of bumped heads when I was still at the network. Uh, we kind of uh, mended our, our relationship right now, but, you know, I, I didn't like all the guys on the MLB network talking uh, about, you know, recreating the game so it's different than what the game was invented to play. So I guess the question is, are there enough people out there that enjoy the game that way? And Ted certainly is one that believes in bullpenning. And I would have to agree that if you're just there, if you're there to, to win the game, uh, kind of, kind of reminds me as a quick aside to when Ruben Rivera, uh, Ruben Sierra got miffed with Joe Torrey, uh, Joe had to criticize him about, I forget what it was, but Ruben's answer was, well, you know, that's the problem with being with the Yankees. All they want to do is win games. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, that really is the object of the game. And so from a general manager's standpoint and a team standpoint, yes, I think I think the 10th uh, the man theory where you use a couple dozen pitchers over 50 to 60 innings each per year would probably be the way. And I, I would even take it a little deeper. I think I told Ted this, that, I would just play the regular season to win 85 games. So, you know, if you got toward the end of the season, you were in a comfortable place and you might finish third, uh, sixth, and what were there, 12 out of 30 teams this year that qualified? Yeah, and there's no real advantage to, I mean, no, you do get it. It's I mean, just uh, to winning it. It's just a qualifying tournament. Yeah. And, and so then you've got Texas, who got hot there near the end, and Evaldi has proven that he is a much different pitcher in postseason than during the season. So if you got those top relievers and you're coming to September and you say, well, I, I don't really care if we win the division. We can, we can win on the road as easily as win at home. And what was the percentage this year of teams that won actually on the road? That doesn't seem to be a big factor anymore. Yeah, home, I, I agree with you. I think yeah, that- so you, you kind of rest them in September – and save them for that three-week push in October, even though you've only won 85 to 88 games during the season and you got a team like Baltimore that won 100, and they didn't make it out of the first round. Yeah. So so to, to Ted's point now, he's you, I heard him speak before. I was a big fan of him as a player, and I agree with you. Uh, I think he's, uh, even though he's a Hall of Famer, I think probably underappreciated in his place in the game. He's a thinker. Does he agree with you to the point that if you do reduce pitchers to just this utilitarian role where they're going through, you know, one time through the lineup, does he agree with you that that would reduce their capacity to become thinkers as well? We've never gotten into that, but that's that's pretty that's pretty sure that that would happen because there is no reason if you come in and I I was fortunate over and this is not to, to make it as a boastful comment, but when my career ended, uh, that was the longest career of any big league pitcher. And I would say, you know, when Nolan and Tommy John, they passed that, but uh, Nolan, Ryan, Tommy John, they were starters for the most part. So I was a starter. 
Then I was a long man. Then I was a forgotten man. Then I would come in in a mop-up situation. Then actually, when the Cardinals got me, I became a closer for a short period of time. So I did have, I think, like 18 saves. So I really experienced pitching in all those different roles. And what I found the difference was in the closer's role is I had to figure out what my one best pitch was which was a sinking fastball down and away, which today would be called the two-seamer. And, and I didn't use the other pitches very much because there wasn't any need in trying to set a hitter up. I'm only going to be in there for one inning, three men or four men. And the number one goal was don't walk anybody. And the number two was never get beaten with your second or third best pitch. Yeah. So you're basically going pitch after pitch like Goose Gossage did, like Mariano Rivera did, uh, like a lot of the flamethrowers do at the, uh, at the end of the game. Uh, is they just, they're, they're throwers. They're, they don't have to think ahead, what am I going to do in that second at bat? Because they're not going to face him in the second at bat, which is the challenge of being a, a starter for years and it was so enjoyable as you know the lesson I got from Warren Spahn when he made the statement uh kid when the game's tied in the seventh inning the game's just starting because you have to learn how to pitch Mickey Mantle differently in that fourth at bat than you did in the first well that doesn't exist anymore but that was that was sort of the fun and you mentioned with your son Tanner that was the fun of and the chemistry of pitcher and catcher and I've, I've used this before, so forgive me if there's a lot of listeners that have heard it before, but uh, when my, my uh, friend Phil Roof joined us in Minnesota and he started catching some of my games, I found that we had a very exceptional relationship together as pitcher-catcher. And I don't think I shook him off very often. And we had a situation in Detroit where Willie Horton, who was a power hitter and a lethal fastball hitter. And if there's one team that gave me a lot of trouble, it was the Tigers as a starter because they had K-Line and Freehand and Horton and Mickey Stanley and on and on. They had all these right-hand hitters. So I got Willie Horton in a key situation late in the game. And I think the count went to about two and two. And I thought to myself, I can get Willie Horton out with a fastball right now, even though he is a lethal fastball hitter, because I've thrown him all the, my pattern was mostly off-speed stuff, curveballs here and there. And sure enough, I look down and Phil puts down number one. And I threw my little school zone fastball in there right by him, and he never even swung at it. So that was a, you know, that was such a satisfying feeling to a starter is to be able to outfox the hitter. And we don't see that anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I think that'd be, I'd love to hear the next part of that conversation with Ted to see if, if he agrees that, Hey, we give, and this is the way the game's changing. It's how to win the game, but what are we sacrificing in terms of, of thinkers out there? So with, with Otani now with, with how he's had multiple uh, Tommy John surgeries, he's not going to pitch for at least a year. Um, how, how would you approach his, um, I guess his status as a pitcher, would you fall in line and say, Hey, let's, let's just make this guy a closer. Yeah. I think based, I think based on that, if he healed, uh, you know, and I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be one of the teams, I guess it would depend on, on what, uh, 
on what my needs were. I mean, basically what they're saying is we're going to sign him as a hitter. Uh, that's fine. But if you go again, along with Ted's kind of thinking, you don't pay that kind of money just to a hitter. You want to pay your big money to the guy that can be the next Mariano Rivera. And then, and, and Ted used this example too, when the Yankees took Dave Rigetti, who had been a starter and they made him a closer. Uh, Dennis Eckersley was a, I think Eck won 200 games as a starter, John Smoltz. Smoltz, And they yeah. became closers, which was proof that for that one inning, the way the game is played right now, you want your best pitcher. So, yeah, I would say if you signed Otani and you're going to use him the first year as a, a hitter, uh, designated hitter, I don't think he's played any other position beside pitcher, has he? Maybe, maybe a few innings in the outfield. He's an athletic guy. I mean, I, yeah, I, he could, what a he waste. Could, I'm sure. But so even if he's just a DH, or you're signing him as a hitter. Yeah. And then in 2025, you think, well, now he can pitch. Well, that's when I think that uh, uh, if Ted were in charge, he'd say, yep, yeah, he's going to pitch this year and he's going to be our closer. And I could not disagree with him because of the way the game is playing. It, it is baffling to me how teams, and I'm so happy for the pitchers, like Sonny Gray, and uh, who are the other starters that signed big deals recently? Uh, we're, uh, I think uh, Gibson signed another nice deal. Yeah, Kyle Gibson. Yep. Love Kyle see. Gibson. Quality individual. I'm happy for these guys that they're, they're giving away crazy money to starters knowing that they're only going to pitch for four and a third innings. Yeah. And they're probably... I mean, Sonny Gray, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think he probably had the highest percentage of no decisions this year uh, in the game. He would go out, lights out for five innings. Twins take him out early in the game. Their bullpen was pretty shaky early in the season, rather. And he came away with a lot of no decisions, and yet he was one of the candidates for the Cy Young Award. What was his final record, eight and six? He was, yeah, he was right about 500. Yeah. And, but that's the kind of the, the money they're paying starting pitchers. But then on, on the flip side, where they really need the best pitchers is at the end of the game. So those yep. two things don't add up. You know, I would rather take, and Whitey Herzog, going back to our Cardinal team at 82 when we won the World Series, and Whitey had said the year before, uh, when I, I didn't know if my career was over, I was 40 two years old then. So I was, no, I was, yeah, 43. And uh, he said, I want you to be my lefty, lefty specialist because I'm going to build my staff from the ninth inning back. So we had Bruce Suter, Jeff Lottie had a very good slider and Jeff had, Whitey kept statistics with a colored pencil and he figured that year, Jeff Lottie retired 36 of the thir first 37 men he faced, you know, coming into the game, that very first hitter that he faced. 36 out of 37. Oh, wow. Uh, Mark Littell, on the other hand, uh, would be a guy you'd start the inning with with nobody on base because his control was a little shaky and he might walk a man. And then we had Doug Bear, who was a former closer and had a very uh, high fastball, good strikeout rate. So he built that team from the ninth inning back. Uh, our lead starter was Joaquin Andar. I think he went 15 and 9, but we had by today's standards or by even those standards in that year, in that time, 
we had above average starters, but we didn't have a number one Max Scherzer, Justin Verlander type starters. Yeah. Maybe Ted's on to something. At least he's reading the he's reading the patterns anyway. I don't know if neither you nor I would like to see the game move totally to Yeah, it's it's a matter of it's a matter of like the game. And I guess, you know, I I accepted his point that I'm selfish and that I want the game played the way it was played when I played because I think it was more enjoyable. Yeah. Well, it falls in line, too, with the conversations you're having recently with the commissioner's office about, you know, how do we get back to that? How do we get back to that head-to-head battle matchup instead of maybe turning pitchers into utility players? Yeah, I don't think we do. And, you know, right, uh, going to another layer of our of our interest in pitching is uh, I- I'm so glad that the uh, the communication we talked about, Jim Colonel. Yes, last time and his his training methods and coaching and teaching methods he has for young players to learn how to throw the ball properly. And uh, he and my friend Rick Porcello, who's recently retired and is interested in doing the same thing, as they have now connected. And I think, uh, you know, through video or something, we're, we're going to be able to, uh, I think Jim and maybe with Rick, I'm I'm sort of the old uh, dinosaur. I just sit and listen and throw my two cents worth in. But I think we're they're going to come up with a way that they can show uh, parents, volunteer coaches, they could even be college and high school coaches, the proper mechanics of throwing a baseball. Jim sent me an interesting email this morning uh, that instead of spending all this money going to different uh, schools, you could just look at the statue of Ferguson Jenkins at Wrigley Field, and he's in a perfect position to release the ball, <laughs> you know, tall on the backside and the, and the hand in the right position. So, you know, that might, that might enable uh, some of the kids through, through proper mechanics to eventually learn to throw the ball over a period of time without getting injured or, uh, or having to have surgery. And of course, through that process, you hope that uh, they don't stress trying to throw the ball too hard for their, their physique that they have right now. Yeah. Jim, Jim actually debuted yesterday with his uh, new podcast on our network, the arms race. And he was eloquent, uh, very, very eloquent with his approach, talked about, you know, the things he's discovered with velocity training this tommy john epidemic and then spin rate yeah um, four things he identified as issues with young pitchers and his his motive is really uh, as you and i have sifted through uh, many conversations with him when you get right down to it he's really looking to improve the health yeah. and improve the performance you know, that, that's the- where the help is needed i mean he, his ideas for me are spot on because they they're i kept it much simpler but basically I, what I would teach a young pitcher is the best way to find your your motion and your release point is to feel the ball like an infielder. And I spent hours doing this in spring training and between starts, whether it was Ozzie Smith or Larry Boa or Zoyle Versailles, whoever the shortstop, Bucky Den on the teams I was on. I love to go out to shortstop. I would keep my pitching hand behind my back, feel them one-handed, hop step, throw over to first. Because when you do that, you throw the ball in one continuous motion. You don't stop and start, stop and start like you do as a pitcher. And that motion breeds the kinds of things that Jim is, is teaching. It puts the ball in the right position. It gets it out of the glove in a hurry and up into the throwing position, up above your head. It doesn't drag 
down behind your back pocket, which I did early in my career. And then it has all this way it has to make up to catch up with your body. And that's where the control and the injury factor come into play. Yeah. I could, I could, uh, in his uh, delivery yesterday and, and the things he said, obviously his years of research came out, but I could, I could, uh, I could hear your conversations, uh, with him in, in responses and in the way he was describing it to our kids out there. So I'm glad you two connect. He did mention about Rick Porcello as well. And that's, that's kind of what we're about with the whole network here with, with the podcast is trying to really connect, make this a living, breathing, breathing organism of, of baseball people that are just trying to make the game better for the next yeah, I, I had, as I said, dinner last night in a new, it's a new neighborhood for us. And we met some wonderful people here in South Georgia and, and one couple had two sons that were college pitchers and a third son is a, a coach at a high school and baseball coach in, uh, in Savannah right now. And they were saying, Oh yeah, we were guilty. We were the travel, we were the travel team parents and pacing up and down wondering how our kids were doing. I, I said, I know it's a trap that, you know, uh, my my daughter, son-in-law, their family, they, they fell into it too. I said, I was so lucky I came up in an era when that didn't exist, but it'd be nice if we can get to we can get back to just letting kids play the game for the pure enjoyment and recreation of it until they get maybe fifteen or sixteen years old. I think my first real competitive baseball was when I was fifteen and I pitched American Legion baseball. And this will give you an idea of how hard I threw, because in the uh, in in the state tournament at Bailey Park in Battle Creek, Michigan, I pitched an eleven o'clock game, seven innings, and then we won that game. And the coach said, "Well, we we got another game now at four. Do you think you could pitch that one?" I said, "Sure, I'm sure, pretty sure I can do that." So I pitched another one, seven innings at four in the afternoon. Obviously, I wasn't throwing ninety-eight miles an hour. I couldn't have done that, but. Uh, I think that's where, you know, you didn't feel the heat of competition with parents and, and friends standing there screaming and hollering at you to do well. You just went out amongst 18 kids and played baseball and had fun and let's see who wins. Yeah. It didn't make you, Lenny, less competitive in the long run, did it? Not at all. I mean, I tried on every pitch. You know, I, I didn't burn like I burned when I... I say burn when I got into professional baseball. I mean, you took that more seriously. I didn't, my college starts, I didn't take that seriously. I pitched to win and fortunately we, we did win them. But uh, when I got into professional baseball, now you're doing it for a living. And, you know, I wanted to get to the big leagues. So those minor league games, yes, you were more intense. There was more pressure and, and that's, and you expect it to be that way. It should be. And, and so that's when the competitiveness comes out, but not when I was 13 or 14. Yeah. Most of that is displaced competitiveness from the parents' side. I made up a vocabulary list. I'll have to share it with you for the parents that we work with, with our one-on-one programs, both with recruiting. Um, you know, we, we've got a global family there with, with, I think it's 46 countries now. And then we run our actual playing programs with baseball and basketball. In addition to making sure everybody's playing multiple sports, we also put together a vocabulary list for the parents because I noticed certain words being used with their kids like grind and they're doing their work. And I, so I changed them to simple things like that. It was instead of saying, hey, so-and-so is out doing their work when they post it on social media, let's call it play. 
like it was yeah. supposed to be. It doesn't sound as, you know, as tough. And then with the grind, I'm like, it's not supposed to be a grind when they're nine years old or 10 or 11 or 12. Yeah. It's, you know, uh, that, that snuck into, that word snuck into the baseball vocabulary and other sports. I don't know when it happened, but, and I'm kind of anal about that, like you said, because when I hear, you know, they grind out at bats, they grind out this, they grind out that. I felt pressure. I was intense. I tried my best. I never thought it was grinding. I thought it was competing and playing and enjoyable. Uh, yeah. But I never felt like it was a grind, and I never felt like it was work. But those are, you know, those are just words that sneak into the vocabulary. But when you really stop and think about it, they're not true. I mean, there shouldn't be. This shouldn't be a grind. You know, a grind is, I think, is when you're a uh, you're an open heart surgeon and you're standing over a patient. Now that's grinding, I think. Oh yeah, I uh, yeah, that's a different generation. Grind for me was my dad having to get up in snowstorms in New York and climb telephone poles to fix fix wires in below zero temperature. Um, you know, in the middle of blizzards, that's a grind. You know, yeah, not, okay. not swinging a bat and throwing a ball. Yeah, yeah I, I, those are little subtleties that we're trying to. Again, I I, I kind of fell into this world. Never wanting to to be play this part with my kids, other than just helping them at home, and I, I kind of laughed. Uh, you know, you mentioned some family members that you, you kind of observed the first time I went and watched some of my uh, family members with their kids, and I would just my eyes went open, and I turned to my wife and I said, "Is this what happens?" And she just shook her head, "Yeah." She said, "That's why I kept you way out here, away from us." Like, oh my gosh, I don't think I can handle this. I hope our kids don't play sports. <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, we, we it, again, it's it's. But rather than just sit aside, our kids enjoy sports. We say, okay, let's let's at least for the people that get it and the people that don't get it, let's see if we can help them. The ones that don't get that they don't get it. Whether I ask them to call it a uh, you know instead of a grind, let's go out there and we're we're just playing, or instead of a wor work we play, um, you know, let's that we can't fix them. They don't want to be fixed. So they're, you know, they're speaking in the time we have left, a couple subjects. Speaking of. Uh of uh, terms you use in, in talking about your career. I, I found this, I got the program for my close friend, Tim McCarver's celebration of life that uh, his friend Julia put together uh, a little less than a month ago now in St. Louis. And uh, gosh, it's just a beautiful program. There were a lot of good speakers there. I, I was occupied with the, uh, Raleigh's gold glove dinner, but as many of you that are listening know, I was actually holding Timmy's hand when he passed away back on February 16 of this uh, year. But he actually wrote this uh, for his book called uh, Baseball for Brain Surgeons, but it really comes across as a great remembrance of the way he played the game, lived his life. So I'm going to read it to you. So I was signed, I was traded, I was waived. I was released, I played it, and I plied it. I was angered by it, disappointed in myself because of it, gladdened and heartened by it. I was cheered in parades, I was booed off the field. I was treated with silent indifference. I was on world champions and cellar dwellers. I was a hero when I failed miserably. I felt on top of the world and like I wanted to crawl under a rock. I spiked and was spiked, took out hard and was taken out hard. I was hit by that little white rat, meaning the baseball, more times than I could count. I hit it hard. I hit it weakly. 
I lifted it, grounded it, popped it, and lined it. I hit it foul and fair without realizing there was nothing fair about it or while realizing that, baseball. I've been thrilled about it, wearied by it, but more than anything else, I've lived it and always loved it. I thought that was a pretty amazing piece. Oh, my God. That's uh, It sounds like a professional writer wrote it. Well, I, I, I think Timmy may have been together with uh, Danny Perry, uh, co-authored some of his books, and I think Danny may have helped him a little bit with the phrasing, but it's certainly, knowing Tim the way I did, it certainly uh, tells a great story about it. He is the most brutally honest uh, friend I've ever met. I mean, he will tell you to your face if what you think is wrong or you're doing the wrong thing. <laughs> you know, he, he has that boldness and the brutal honesty that uh, a lot of us wish we possessed but don't. Yeah, those damn catchers, I'll tell you. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. you, you, um, you had another show note, too, about uh, Jim Leland getting, he got inducted. Yeah, I, I called him, congratulated him, I, and I saw the, re, you know, the comments from uh, Justin Verlander and the guys. I think it was so heartwarming to Jim is the comments he got from not only the players in the big leagues, but in the minor leagues. But, uh, you know, I was disappointed that my friend Bill White uh, did not get in. He missed by two votes. Lou Pinella missed by one. But it shows you how difficult it is to get that 75% vote. You know, I know that better than anyone, getting exactly 75%. But I looked at the, uh, the eight candidates, and there were so many qualified candidates that uh, there's 16 on the committee and, and that gave those 16 guys, I think that they were all guys. I'm not sure. I know Kim Ng was on the committee when I was eligible, but the 16 voters, tough choices because you had Cito Gaston, two-time world champions with the Jays. You had Davey Johnson. Uh, you had Bill who was, the first, and I use the word black because Bill White never referred to himself as an African-American. He was a black American. And he was the first to be a play-by-play -play announcer. He got a personal letter from Jackie Robinson complimenting him on improving the conditions where the black players could stay in the same hotels and eat at the same restaurants in Florida in the early 60s when it didn't exist. Uh, he was the National League president and became the highest ranking uh, black or African-American executive uh, in professional sports. He had a lot of qualifications, as did Lou Pinella. And uh, so the fact that these guys had these choices and they had to only pick three, and I think by splitting the vote like that, for example, if they could have picked four, both Lou and Bill would have gotten in, I'm sure. But then you had uh, Cito getting a few votes, Davey Johnson. Uh, there were there was a couple, I forget all the other uh, names that were on the ballot, but that's what made it difficult. But it also points out how the majority of that committee felt very strongly that Jim Leland uh, did deserve it, and he got it. Yeah, it was a stacked ballot. It really was. And how, how many votes did they have to get to get in? 12 out of 16, which, you know, we'd never elect a president in our country if you had to get 75% of the vote. Yeah. You barely get 50. 
So you had to get 12 out of 16. And, uh, you know, Lou got 11 out of 16. Bill White got 10. And and Jim Leland, uh, almost unanimous, got 15. But uh, I just bring that story up because that's how difficult it is. And not not just difficult to get into the Hall of Fame, but the process that the voters have to go through is difficult. How do you separate Jim Leland, Lou Pinella, Davy Johnson, Cito Gaston? They've all won world championships. They all managed over a long period of time and were successful. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's the smallest fraternity in our country. So it's, it's, uh, you know, in some ways that, you know, they, people argue back and forth, is it the hall of great or the hall of good? And the guys that you mentioned, Davy Johnson, Bill White, um, you know, Cito Gaston, these, these are guys that have given their anatomy, uh, to baseball and have changed the game in some capacity. I hope they all get in. I really do. And I don't know, I'm not asking for them to, to lower the the standards by any mean, but uh, get those committee members together and fight for maybe four next time, like you said, four or five as a number. Why do we want to leave our audience? That's a great show, packed. When I read the show notes, you said, you know, you you you, you're, you update me daily, and and uh, always love the way you think. I'm I'm your catcher. I just nod yes when you throw at me. So <laughs> yeah, we get along so well. But uh, how do you want to leave the audience today? I, I love the McCarver. I, I love that. I'm I'm going to. Uh, with with your permission, kind of type it out, and I'm going to make a copy for myself. So I think it's. Yeah. I mean, it could. I think it came from his book, uh, Baseball and Brain Surgeons, because Timmy wrote it, and he's very much like Ted. In fact, I can see those two going head to head and arguing with one another because they're. But uh, uh, and you know, Steve Carlton, the reason he began to pitch to Tim is that he he never wanted to shake the catcher off. He didn't want that responsibility. Lefty just wanted to get the ball, turn his left wrist about a quarter of a turn inside and throw that slider as hard as he possibly could. He was a freak, and that's what he did. Yeah. But he never he never shook Timmy off as Whitey Ford never shook Yogi Berra off. And uh, so so Tim had that kind of respect from from a pitcher like Steve Carlton to, uh, you know, to trust his beliefs and his instincts. And he was certainly a – a brilliant mind. I think he could have been a GM, a manager about anything he wanted to do in, uh, in baseball. Yeah. But I, I, I would think uh, it's going to be fun paying attention to, uh, to the free agent craze. And I, I just laugh at it because I remember when Marvin Miller, our executive director of the players association, he didn't want every player to be a free agent every year. Yeah. He didn't want to flood the market. So now you have Blake Snell left. Uh, you have Otani left. Uh, I think Montgomery's still available. Who? Jordan Montgomery, I believe, is still available. Jordan Montgomery's available, so you have a few left. And they will go crazy in outbidding one another, uh, and then they'll find out that they got a five-inning pitcher. And so, you know, it's going to be interesting to see where they go, and then there's the Juan Soto trade. Uh, And uh, the, the Red Sox today made... For them, it was a big deal. They they unloaded Alex Verdugo, who they never were happy with because of his behavior off the field. Or I, I shouldn't say that off the field that he was not uh, of good character, but he kept showing up late. He wasn't accountable, so they they made a, a deal and traded him to of all people the Yankees. But right. Yeah. I I laugh now at the free agent signings because it's just what uh, what Marvin kind of predicted that uh, 
they're going to overpay because there's that if we don't get them, then if we don't get them, then this other rival in our division is going to get them. And we don't want to have that to happen. So we're going to up the bid a little bit more. For years before players actually wanted to play for the Yankees, they used George Steinbrenner. They would go through New York to talk to the Yankees, even though they really didn't want to end up there. And then they would go back, like in Maddox's case, to the Braves. Or I'm sure there were other cases they'd go back and say, well, the Yankees have offered us this. So bingo, the offer for them from the other team goes up and the players just keep taking advantage of it. And I'm I'm happy for the players because I, I played in the days when, um, you know, for a few years, uh, my record was like 14 and 10 with an ERA in the high twos. And I took a $5,000 cut. So I'm kind of happy right now that those days are over and these guys, there's only a, there's only a few hundred of them that can play the game at that level and uh, they're getting paid handsomely for doing it. Nowadays, you'd make $5,000 a pitch. Yeah, maybe. Well, and I only have to pitch five innings. <laughs> well, they count your warm-up pitches too, probably. Oh, yeah, probably. Load, 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 man. <laughs> load man. That was a great, great show today, Jim, and I, I appreciate you sharing. I always do your um, you approach it from many levels and you share uh, both your 10,000 foot view, your personal experiences, but also the relationships that you, you've built over time, like with Ted Simmons, Tim McCarver. I think our audience benefits from as much or more from that stuff than, than the baseball tutelage. So thanks for sharing all that. That's uh, appreciated. I'm thanking you from them and also from me. That's the selfish thank you because I enjoy hearing about it as well. Well, I appreciate that. I enjoy doing it. Yep. And I'm going to go out and get my blackout coffee. Yeah, get that espresso hopping today so you can get out there on the golf course if it warms right. up. We're getting a little cool weather here in Myrtle Beach today. And by cool, it's like 55, and I'm getting softer. But I uh, want to thank our audience. We're growing. We're close to 60,000 subscribers now. Hope to hit that by Christmas. Um, we were at 3,000, I believe, at this time last year. So we've, we've grown a ton uh, thanks to Blackout Coffee. appreciate your, your support with us. Make sure to check out if you're going to buy some for the holiday. Use Jim K, capital J-I-M, capital K, number 20 afterwards. That'll get you 20% off at checkout. And it'll support the podcast here and Jim's efforts to provide you such great information. And let's give our, our, our friend Ted Kubiak um, a little plug for Christmas, Old School and How to Field a Ground Ball, two great books. I suggest buying them both. We'll put how-tos in the show notes for you guys to, to do that. And we'll put some posts on social media so we can... Uh, direct you to Ted's website. But uh, Jim, great show today. And with that, just uh, want to thank our audience. And uh, I guess we'll see them next week. All right, Dave. Look forward to it. Thank you. Cool at the